Welcome to this week's edition of Island Recast. For more information on Grand Memorial Presbyterian Church or Pastor David, please go to gmpc.org. Advent. Did you know the word has in its meaning both coming and arrival? We think of it, like we spoke of earlier, as a season in which we anticipate celebrating the coming of Jesus as a baby 2,000 years ago. This is one of my favorite seasons of the year, especially in Coronado. There's the Christmas songs playing in all the stores. There's a tree in the Grand Hotel, one in the park as well. I always thought that song was written about our town. There's Christmas decor brightening up people's homes. And my favorite, when you drive across the bridge at night and see the Dell lit up in Christmas lights. But sometimes in the busyness of this Christmas season, we can forget what it must have been like to wait for the Christ child all those years ago. And we forget what it should be like for us now as we wait for Christ's second coming as our triumphant king. So today, as we begin this Advent season, let's return to the beginning of the Jesus story and discover what this Advent really means for us. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke 1, 26 through 45. If you're using the Bible in the pews, it can be found on page 723. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be barren is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zachariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. 
I spent the last year working as a birth doula, partnering with women and their husbands in pregnancy and labor and birth to help them achieve their birth goals. And as I've spent time with pregnant women, I've realized there really is no better picture to talk about what it's like to wait for something and wait and wait and wait. And even once labor begins, often you continue to wait and wait for the child that is to come. We even use the phrase in other ways in English, like a pregnant pause. From the moment a woman finds out they're pregnant, they're filled with feelings of wonder, of awe, maybe of fear, and of expectation of what this pregnancy will be like, what birth will be like, what this child will be like. Our passage today tells us about two such pregnant women who no doubt felt a lot of those same feelings that women feel today, but with an extra splash of the divine thrown in. In each of these women's stories, God shows up with a message of favor and blessing and gives them both the gift of conception. They would each bear a son. And not just any sons, they would each bear a son that had a significant role to play in God's next stage of his great plan of redemption. In Mary's angelic visit, we get hints of just how great her baby's role would be. This child of hers would be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. And the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. This announcement, pulling from Old Testament themes and prophecies, makes known what we know to be true from the rest of the New Testament. This child is a special child. This child, miraculously conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit, is the fully divine, fully human Son of God, who would redeem the world from the curse of sin and from the brokenness that we all experience and provide a means of salvation and righteousness that can be found only through him. But out of all the possible ways that this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God could come to earth, he chose to be formed in a womb and to be born of a woman. Mary, full of grace, mother of Christ. After this event, she's often elevated to sainthood. But what do we learn about her here? Not very much. She's from Galilee, a town called Nazareth. It's quite an insignificant town. In fact, in the Bible, this is the first we hear of it. And she's a virgin, pledged to be married to a man named Joseph from the house of David. Described in these terms, she could have been as young as 12. And this marriage contract that she had entered with Joseph, though they would not consummate the marriage until their wedding night, it was a binding contract. If Joseph were to die during this period, Mary would be considered a widow. So to experience a pregnancy out of wedlock in this season of her life would bring Mary great social speculation and shame. She had everything to lose. And Elizabeth, quite different from Mary, we learn earlier in this chapter that Elizabeth is married to a priest, Zachariah. And she herself is from the priestly line of Aaron. And in this chapter, she's described as being upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandments 
and regulations blamelessly. Blamelessly. But she had her own shame that she was carrying. For you see, even though Zachariah and her were following the law of the Lord blamelessly, she was barren. And she was old. She had yet to have a child. Elizabeth's inability to conceive no doubt brought her and Zachariah great pain and shame. For you see, we understand something of this. Even today, the inability to bear children brings with it great pain and sometimes social shame. But in this day, there's no comparison. For all a woman had, really, was her ability to bear children. Not only was this her primary responsibility in her community, but this was her primary means of participating in the work of God, to fulfill that command to be fruitful and multiply. And not only that, but in these days, barrenness was seen as a curse for disobedience. So it's not out of the realm of possibility for those around her to be wondering, what sin are they hiding that God would not give them a child? But God breaks through the impossibility of barrenness and old age to bring life to Elizabeth's womb. The angel, in response to Mary's wondering, how can this be since I have not known a man, points to Elizabeth's pregnancy as proof that nothing is impossible with God, not conception from barrenness and not even conception from virginity. Mary rushes off to meet Elizabeth and see for herself and is met by an eruption of joy and blessing from both Elizabeth and her prenatal child. Upon hearing Mary's greeting, the Holy Spirit confirms Christ's identity to Elizabeth and she profusely declares Mary's blessedness as well as the blessedness of the child that is growing in her womb. Truly, both of these women experience the favor of God and both are pronounced blessed because of God's unique work in them in this season. But it is significant that Mary ends this eruption of praise and blessing by saying this, Blessed is she who has believed that what the Lord has said to her will be accomplished. This language, far from limiting this blessing just to Mary, seems to point beyond Mary to women who have believed that God would fulfill the words that he had spoken to them. This isn't a new thing God is doing, fulfilling the words he has spoken. It's just who he is. It's part of his character. He's always done so. But God is especially in the business of fulfilling this promise, this word, this word of a child who would bring salvation. And if we've been paying attention as we read this sacred book of the Bible, we would know that this is always how it had to happen. This promise, fulfilled through the womb of a woman, bringing a saving seed. Let's go all the way back to the beginning and see how this promise has been carried throughout God's history with humanity. In Genesis, God creates man and woman, and he blesses them, and he says, be fruitful and multiply. But what happens shortly after? Man and woman disbelieve God's word and disobey it, falling into sin. And when God returns to them, he speaks new words to them, words of cursing to the snake and the ground, and words of consequence to Adam and the woman. 
But in the midst of these new words he's speaking, he speaks this promise, a promise of salvation. In Genesis 3.15, it says, And I, God, will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Did you catch that? Who is going to crush the head of the serpent? An offspring of the woman, a seed from Eve. Then in the next verse, we learn that producing these offspring will not be easy for Eve. It will include pain. And shortly afterward, Adam names this woman Eve, for she will be the mother of all living. Now I wonder if Adam perhaps had this promise from Genesis 3.15 in mind when he named her this knowing that from her would come one who would save them from their sin. Regardless of if Adam had this in mind, we as the readers are sure to to be encouraged to have this in mind as we read the story. Eve conceives, gives birth to a son, and she says, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. She recognizes that it's only by God's grace that she has conceived this child. And perhaps she rejoices in the potential promise fulfiller that this child would be. But this child is Cain. And far from bringing blessing and life and fulfilling this promise, Cain kills his brother Abel, bringing death and destruction. Rather than crushing the head of the serpent and killing sin, he is consumed by sin. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, The biblical authors trace this offspring of Eve, this seed of the woman. You know all those genealogies that we tend to skip over because they have a lot of complicated names? That's part of what these authors are doing. They're tracing this line, narrowing it from all of the children of Eve to specific children of Eve to see where this promised salvation bringer might come from. There are many bumps along the way, moments in which it seems that this promise would never come to pass that it was impossible. But God continues working in wombs to bring forth this child of the promise. With Abraham comes a renewal of that promise and a further narrowing of this line. In a story that has significant parallels to our story today, God comes to Abraham and says, your wife Sarah will bear a child. But what's the problem? Sarah is barren and she's old. Sound familiar? Sarah laughs when she hears this promise of God. And God responds to her, Is anything too hard for the Lord? For nothing is impossible with God. Clearly not, for God in Genesis 21 was gracious to Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. This child of the promise, Isaac, himself marries a barren woman, Rebekah. I hope you're noticing the pattern here. The Lord again intervenes to bring life in an impossible situation, bringing forth the next potential saving seed, Jacob. Jacob marries two women, Rachel and Leah, and each in turn have their wombs opened by the Lord to bring Jacob many sons. And Jacob, at the end of his life, further narrows this line, this expectation, and says that the king will come from the line of Judah. Judah, who just a few chapters earlier had mistaken his daughter-in-law for a prostitute and slept with her, 
that Judah would bring the promised one? Not only that Judah, but yes, from that union would the promised one come. Fast forward to the book of Ruth, when we are shown an unexpected woman, not unlike Mary, a foreigner who, because of God's intervention in providing a redeemer in Boaz, herself joins this line of women who carries significant sons in the line of the promise. From her child is descended David, the king. In David, we see God again work miracles despite great odds and great sin. For where does this line of the promise continue? From David's union with Bathsheba, another man's wife. This could have brought further condemnation, but God chose to use this situation for his glory and to continue to fulfill the word that he had spoken. The books of Kings and Chronicles continue to recount countless times in which it seems that all is lost. This promise would never be fulfilled. But God intervenes, bringing life to wombs time after time after time. The prophets continue this promise. They speak words of king and savior and child, even a virgin birth in Isaiah. And women keep having babies, and the people of God keep waiting for this promised child to come. And then, silence. At the close of the Old Testament, we have 400 years of silence, which the Spirit of God speaks no new words of God. And the people of God are left to wait, wait to see if God would continue to fulfill this promise, and wonder, is it even true? But God is still maintaining this line of promise in those 400 years of silence through birth after birth after birth after birth until this birth, Mary's birth, the promised birth. Because it is this child, Mary's child, that finally gives the answer to the question we've been asking throughout this whole story. Is this the son who will bring salvation? It is. He is. Jesus is. For this child would live a life of perfect obedience to God's words. Following the example of his mother, he would believe the words that God had spoken to him. In fact, he was the word of God. And he would die a sacrificial death on the cross, bearing the weight of guilt and sin of all humanity. And he would rise again from death into everlasting life, conquering death and sin once and for all and providing a means of salvation to those that believe in him. It is this work that crushes the head of the serpent and solves that ancient problem of sin that we could never solve for ourselves. Now, I like to think that Mary and Elizabeth, in their own small ways, understood that they were a part of this promise being fulfilled. This promise first spoken in Genesis 3.15 and confirmed time and time again in broken and sinful women just like them who believed, who conceived, who bore, and who lived lives of obedience waiting for God to fulfill his promise. But the blessedness of Mary and Elizabeth doesn't come from their ability to bear children. In fact, neither of them could apart from God's miraculous work. But their blessedness comes from their belief that God was the one 
who he said he was. He was one who would fulfill his words that he had spoken to them. And this is how we too can be truly blessed. This gospel news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is the word that God has spoken to us. That life, true and beautiful and whole life, is only found by believing in this child, in his life. He is the fulfillment of that early Genesis promise that one would come to crush the head of the serpent. He is the answer to the question being asked in all of scripture. Is this the one? He is. If you haven't made the choice to believe in this word of God, this gospel word, let this Advent season be one in which you await Christ, not just as a baby born 2,000 years ago, but as the Lord of your life. And if you've never made that choice to believe in Jesus as that kind of Lord, I would love to talk with you about what that might look like in your life. This gospel word is one that goes out to all of us each and every day. The question is, are we listening? Do we believe it? Will we heed it? Let this Advent season be one where you trust that the Lord has and does and will fulfill the words that he has spoken to you, ultimately in the day of Christ's return and our eternal life with him. Thank you for listening to Island Recast. For more information, please go to gmpc.org. As we enter this Advent season, I think this passage gives us a beautiful picture of two ways forward, Mary's and Elizabeth's. Perhaps some of you, like Mary, have heard a very specific word that God has spoken to you, whether through his word or his people or his spirit, and you need to obey. It might be a conviction of sin, it might be a calling into something more in any aspect of your life. So may you, like Mary, respond this way. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. And others of you, like Elizabeth, may be feeling burdened as you walk into this Advent season. Perhaps you too, like her, are awaiting the fulfillment of a promise that God has made to you that is a long time coming. Perhaps you are bearing grief or pain Or perhaps you're just bearing the weight of having lived through a year and a half of unprecedented times in many ways. May you, like Elizabeth, receive this word that God has spoken to you today. And like her, say, but why am I so favored that the Lord should come to me? For you see, there's nothing you can do to add to the favor that God has bestowed upon you in Christ. There's nothing you can do to be more loved more accepted if you have believed in the name of Jesus. So this Advent season, let's remember these two women and remember their example and await Christ as the God who will fulfill the word he has spoken to us. He has fulfilled it in his life, death, and resurrection, and he will still yet fulfill it in his coming again.